I think that song, I was, all of those songs, I was messed me up. But uh, I remember singing. Let me see if I can find this one. You won't relent until you have it all. My heart is yours. And I love that this is our response to God. But I remember the day when I was worshiping, singing this song, and I felt like God said, hey, I need you to be quiet. I need to sing this over you. Think about this from his side. I won't relent until you have it all. My heart is yours too. Like God pursues our hearts. He goes after us. He runs. It's like that whole, he leaves the 99 to go out. Like, you know what? I'm coming after you and I'm not going to relent until you have all my heart. Isn't that good? Ah, there's your bonus sermon for the day. All right. We have been going through Genesis all summer and we are currently like, handful of chapters in. So those of you that are college, young adults, we're going to catch up to speed really quick today, but also we're going to do some more in-depth stuff and connections um, in the next couple weeks. But um, what I want to do is this week, because we've had a lot of people that have been in and out during the summer, we've had college students that have been gone that are now back. I just want to walk through, well, a lot of the summer, and then I'm going to add some things in as we go, okay? So the first thing is, do we read the scripture from our paradigm or do we read the, our paradigm out of the scriptures? And what that I mean is a lot of times we have our understanding, right? So our foundation of how we've learned about the world around us and we see everything through our UP mindset or our American mindset, right? And so sometimes I think we need to be challenged, hey, let's step back and let's see what the scripture says first and then try to make my paradigm fit what the scriptures say. Because I think the temptation very frequently is we read the scriptures and we try to make it fit our paradigm. Does that make sense? Like today we're going through all sorts of stuff in our culture. I mean, you guys got the email about Title IX stuff for me last night in the middle of the night. Um, those that you don't know, take a look at the link in there. Uh, come talk to me afterwards. But our country's going through some stuff, right? We're getting at a place where there's some really big hot topics and our country has been really good at dividing itself. And the desire that Jesus had was, Father, make them one as we are one, right? And they'll know that we're Christians by our love. And so we have to be the ones, in a lot of ways, that are setting the precedent of love, but also unity, but also in truth, right? Because if we're not doing those things and we're just reacting to a culture around us, we'll never catch up, right? We talked earlier in the summer about how a lot of times... Christianity is trying to, like, make Christianity relevant to the, the culture around us. But the culture around us is trying to make Christianity irrelevant, right? It, do, it doesn't work. It's not going to work, right? They're trying to take Jesus out of the context, and Jesus is our context. Do we consider the text through the eyes of Western culture, Eastern culture, or Hebrew culture? All right? One of the things that you're going to find with me is a lot of times I will try to present some stuff from not just the American mindset, but also Eastern or Hebrew mindsets, all right? And I think part of that is I just like seeing things from different angles because a lot of times it's like, oh, never considered it that way. All right, here's some of what we covered. God created everything in six days and rests. He creates us in his image, which means that he's created us to be creative. We talked about do we have a far God or a near father? We talked about how God creates a space for us to fill and then he invests invites us to create a space for him to fill in our lives. He uses 
chiasms all the time and patterns in the Bible. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, Adam's father reveals his presence first and not his power first. All right? Um, Our story starts with goodness. We see that God sets patterns. So at the start, there's chaotic waters and the spirit, the ruach, hovering over the waters. Right? And the chaotic waters, the Hebrew word for that is tofu vofu, which is really kind of fun to say. Um, But there's this like chaos of waters, and then you have the spirit over the waters, and God speaks. And when God speaks, there's creation, and he brings things into the right order, and then there's this testing. The reason why I got this sign up here is because we're going to see this again with Noah and with Moses and with Jesus. Like this pattern happens multiple times, okay? And we talked a little bit about chiasms. So chiasms are this thing that, that are in Hebrew. If we were to read the text in Hebrew, we'd see, oh, you've got God created in, in the very first verse, and then in uh, chapter 2, it's everything that he had created. And the earth was void of life and the waters, right? And then the bottom, God filled the waters, right? The green, God created light in the firmament. Green on the bottom, God filled the heavens and the lights. God created the dry land in orange, and God filled the dry land in orange. So it's almost like they're building all this thing, and you get to this pivot verse, which is, and God saw that it was good, right? And then it pivots off of that, and it like fills the first ones coming up to it. Does that make sense? We see this over and over and over again in the text. Sometimes if you're like, man, I feel like I'm reading a chapter, and they just said the same thing seven different times. How many of you felt like that before? You're like, man, I... I got it. The first time that you said it, I got it. It's because it's these chiasms that they put into their language. And they put these in there so it's like, I want you to focus in on the thing that's most important. Right? The thing that's most important at the start of this is, God thought it was good. We didn't get into the details of it, but did you guys know that he didn't say, like in the passage, every day it's like, and it was good. There's, there's day two in particular. Day, day two, yeah. He doesn't have that phrase, and it was good. Isn't that a fascinating thought? I'll leave that for you guys to chew on and figure out why. But right. um, we talked a little bit about some things that happen in life that are not easy and how mankind has been given dominion, and God is sovereign, but he chooses not to be in control, and that's, that's a, we have to talk about that or you else have to listen to the old sermon. But basically, God has given us choice, which is crazy, Right? Like, and choice is there because love isn't verified without a choice. And he gave them one choice. He said, hey, I want you to not eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, which leads to death, but I want you to, you know, taste everything else. Like, eat of this life. Eat of everything. Like, it's everything. Just don't eat of this one tree. Right? He had to give them a choice. And he wanted them to follow his word, trust his word, trust his spirit. And yet, we all know what happens, right? Adam and Eve, they eat of this tree. When they eat of this tree, a lot of things happen. It goes from naked with no shame to naked with shame. We didn't have comparison, judgment, shame, anger, fear. A lot of those things were not a part of the world until they ate of this tree of knowledge and good and evil. And then they started adding those things into their paradigm, right? All of that stuff ends up there. Um, Again, before, you had a God that came close to them, that walked in the garden. And after... We still had a God that came close and and met with them. Okay? We also had no sin. We had no death before. 
And then we had sin that led to death afterwards. All right? They got kicked out east of the garden. Um, there was some curses that happened. All right? Similarities between Adam and Eve. They started having kids. Cain kills Abel. And you see some of the same words in Hebrew back and forth. Where they couldn't master their desire and they chose to act on it. God says, where are you? And it's not like, I can't find you. Like, where did you go? It's, you are not in the spot that I left you. You're not in the spot. You're not in the relationship that you're supposed to be in. There's something that's wrong. And ever since, God is trying to make things right by putting things back in order, back into the place where it needs to be, back in right relationship with us. Okay? Again, they get moved east of the garden. The ground was cursed in both of them. Face hidden from God. Enmity. God chose mercy instead of immediate death sentence for both. And then new life was born out of their brokenness. Okay, we see that Abel was declared righteous. We see that Noah was declared righteous. This is all before we have the law with Moses, which means righteousness was there before and after the law, but it was credited to them as faith, right? And so those that trusted what God was saying and followed and believed God's word Genesis 4, you've got this passage where you have Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Okay? One of the things that we see with this is the Bronze Age started before the flood. Right? Again, we're talking about, we have a foundation. If we look just from the foundation of our public school system, Bronze Age didn't start until thousands of years later. But here we have a guy that knows how to make instruments. And I don't think it's just the trumpet. I think that they are tools and all sorts of other instruments that way. And they're able to do stuff out of bronze. In order to be able to do stuff out of bronze, you have to know how to mine. After you mine, you take precious metals and you have to be able to know how to mix them. So there's alchemy happening before the flood. Right? And these guys have some time on their hands because they're, they're living like 900 years old. So you've got some of that stuff. There's also some passage there in Genesis where we talked about so-and-so going and building these cities. So you've got cities that are being built. You've got intentionality. You know, when we look at the idea, the concept, if we're looking things from just our paradigm, our paradigm will say, you know what? There's been billions of years where we came from algae, but then you know what? Eventually we made it all the way to caveman. And then caveman figured out fire. And we keep going from there. And you know, now we're smarter than we've ever been. And yet we can't really figure out how they made the pyramids. And we can't figure out, wait a second, these things align directly harmonically with the stars. Okay, and we got this thing and with that thing. And wait a second, you have the exact constellation pattern of temples in Egypt, but you also have them in the Aztecs, and you also have it in the Amazon jungle, but then you also have it in Asia. You start saying, wait a second, there was an intelligence that we don't quite give them credit for, right? There was an intelligence where they were building things, right? After the flood, we'll talk about this later, the Tower of Babel supposedly was 8,000 feet high. That's like Six and a half times the World Trade Center. Like, that's crazy if it's accurate. Now, how I got to that, we'll talk about when we get there, right? But, like, my point being, there were some smart people, some really smart people around. 
Okay, we talked about how um, Hebrew mindset, when they look at the scriptures, they do these four things. Peshat, which is like when you read the scripture and it's like, oh, this is the simple, obvious, literal meaning of the biblical text. Like this is what God's trying to say. And the cool thing is, if you stay at Peshat level, you can spend your entire life reading the Bible over and over again, and there will still be revelation after revelation after revelation of just surface-level stuff that will shift your entire world, okay? Then there's a remez, and remez is like there's a hint in the text that, hey, there's more depth to this. In Eastern Orthodox minds, it's like the thing that sticks out, it's like, this is weird. Like, why is this a part of this? Like, you know what? We're talking about all this creation, and then we go into, like, there's four rivers. Why in the world do we have four rivers in the middle of the Genesis account? Like, that's weird. And we start off with like tons of detail with the first one. And then by the fourth one, it's just like there's a fourth river. All right, moving on. And you're like, wait, what? And our Western minds were like, okay, that's weird. Just moving on. I'm not going to think about that. I don't have to resolve anything because I didn't really care how many rivers there were, right? Eastern Orthodox mind, like there's a question. I need to dig into that, okay? Um, drash which is that search for that depth of saying, okay, I'm going to go and try to figure out in the text what this is about. And then so does the secret depth that connects it that says, aha, here's your light bulb moment. We talked a little bit about Matthew 18, and this is an example of that. I wanted to give you guys some context. So then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? So they're having a conversation, right? A rabbi and his disciple Having this conversation, hey, should I forgive up to seven times? He's triggering all the way back to this right here. In red, Cain, okay? Genesis 4. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. He's really asking Jesus, should I even forgive somebody up to murder? That's a bold question. And Jesus is like, um... You know what, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, okay? And he's saying, hey, I'm not talking about just Cain, right? But Lamech, if you see the seventh generation uh, to whatever, whatever generation is from Cain, Lamech in Genesis 4, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man, which is more accurately a boy for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times, right? Jesus is like, no, no, no. Even worse than Cain, you remember that Lamech dude who was really, really bad? Like, I want you to go back to that. Like, I want you to forgive over and over and over and over the worst of the worst, right? Which is a challenging thing, but this is what that conversation is. And then he pivots and he says, all right, let me give you a parable. You know, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. All right, I need uh, two people just to come up here real quick. Two, whoever comes first, two. One, two. Perfect. All right, and we talked a little bit about this, and I kind of walked through this passage. Right? Basically, you have this conversation where there's, there's a king, and he's got somebody who's indebted to him 200,000 lifetimes worth of stuff. And he says, hey, have mercy on me. I'll pay it all back. And I say, you know what? I'm going to cancel your debt. Right? 
He comes over and finds somebody that owes a few months and starts choking her out. Don't actually choke her out. Choking her says, give me all that you owe me, right? And the rest of everybody's like, I can't believe he's doing that. And they tell the king. And the king comes and says, hey, I'm going to take you and I'm going to throw you in jail. And this is right here where in anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And we talked a little bit about the Greek phrase of payback, how it means release, forgive, cancel, or repay. And we looked at in Greek, this actually is probably more accurately translated, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. As in, he is in a jail being tortured with the keys to get himself out of jail. The keys to get him out of jail is forgiveness, is to forgive, cancel this debt. Does that make sense? Like, which makes him in some ways almost like his own jailer. Because if you've got the keys to the jail cell, you're kind of like putting yourself in jail. And we talked, you guys can go ahead and sit down. We talked about how forgiveness does that. A lot of times when we hold unforgiveness towards other people, we think that we're holding them in jail, but really it's just torturing ourselves. We're the ones that are in that jail cell until we can forgive and cancel and let go of that. Does that make sense? All right, we talked about how very frequently in the Bible, God talks about, behold, it's better to obey than sacrifice and listen than the fat of rams. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. All right? We talked about some reflections, and don't get excited. This is not my final slide. We talked about how does questioning what you believe shake your faith, or does it create a space for you to grow? We talked about how, you know what, there's a difference between faith and belief, and they're very, very tied. But if we are immature in our faith, we think that if our belief is challenged, that it means that we also have to challenge our faith, that our faith is questioned, and it's not necessarily accurate. When we challenge our beliefs, it should actually promote our faith and intimacy in him. Okay? What things do we see through the perspective of good and evil? And what things do we see through the perspective of life? That goes back to those two trees. <clears throat> and that second tree is where you have the comparison and shame. And how does that affect our thoughts, beliefs, words, actions, behaviors? All right? Um, we talked about how in the New Testament, Jesus said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And I personally believe that there was probably more things tied with as in the days of Noah than just the fact that they were getting married and eating food. Right? I think that there's more connections than that, which is part of why we've spent some time of what exactly was it like in the days of Noah, Right? So Genesis 6, we started talking about when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. So we started talking about what exactly is this Nephilim thing, right? Last week, how many people, I probably shouldn't single you out. Those of you that are like, 
We weren't here last week, and we're like, what are you talking about with Nephilim and giants? Well, I'm talking about the fact that this here would suggest very strongly that it was angels that married and procreated with human daughters and had essentially half-breeds or demigods as, as you would have the Greek or their understanding of it, which is a crazy situation. And then you'd have these like massive giants that were in the land then and also afterwards. Okay? If you're like, Benny, I'm not tracking. You're going too fast. This is crazy. I understand. Genesis 6 is crazy. All right, we talked. And again, we're going to have all of the previous sermons archived if you want to sit and listen to it, or you can come talk to me and we'll get into more depth. All right, it goes into the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I made them. But Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We looked at the nine different times last week that this word that is translated here as regret is translated in other parts of the scripture. And this is the only one of the nine that is translated in English as regret. But very frequently it's the was sorry or repented of the Lord, um, regretted, had sorrow, was very sad. And basically the concept is he was going away, he was going towards, I'm going to destroy all of them. But he repented, which means he turned from this direction and said, I'm not going to do that. And he found favor in Noah. So he was going down this direction of like, hey, they deserve, like there's this, this thing that's happening and I got to put an end to this thing that's happening, but also I'm going to find a way to relent and, and be merciful, okay? So he went from impending doom filled with grief to saving Noah and making covenant mankind. Again, there's more of this in last sermon. Numbers 13, 20, uh, 32 through 33 it says, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it, which is cannibalism. Um, all of the people we saw there of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We, uh, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And we talked a little bit about all the different places around the world and some pictures of of all of the skeletons that they've found. Like they've found all sorts of remnants of giants through a lot of different time periods. And you're like, okay, Benny, this is crazy. But yes, it's crazy. There were giants in the land before the flood. There were giants afterwards. There's giants. There's architecture that we can find around the world. How many people have seen like those massive steps in Peru where it's just like, who in the world would make these steps going up? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. There's stuff like that. There's, there's places where they've got these massive boulders that we don't have cranes that can move them, and you can't even slip a piece of paper in between them, right? You've got, I mean, I could spend hours of showing you pictures of stuff, but like there's doors that are like this in buildings across the world, and some that will have a latch like two-thirds of the way up. It's like, why would you have a lock all the way up there where nobody can reach it, right? You've got Egyptian stuff in the caves where you have all sorts of giants like, Here's pictures of them. Look at that compared to a giraffe. Maybe they're just terrible with their drawings, right? I mean, you've got other ones. Like it's, it's like this guy right here. I don't know anything about this YouTube.com. I just stole it off the internet. Um, 
But like, you look at the size of that guy, and it looks like he's carrying bricks for the pyramid, right? You've got mummies that they have found, for instance, that are this size, right? It goes across. I mean, we talked about how even in the 1900s or uh, 1800s, there was things that we've produced in our New York Times where in America they were finding skeletal bones of giants in our land. A lot of places in our land, there's oral uh, traditions from our Native American populations of giants, right? And so I'm just saying that there's, there's more than we think. All right, going back to Genesis 3, one of the curse, God cursed the serpent, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I think a lot of this comes back down to the fact that you've got this serpent that's trying to deceive Eve, trying to deceive Adam. There's this thing that happens and God says, I'm going to put enmity between you, serpent, and you, woman. There's going to be two seeds. I mean, it says between your offspring and hers, your seed and her seed. So you, you have two seeds. You have humankind as a seed, right? Then you have this other seed, which we don't like to think about. We, some of you are like, I've never heard what you're talking about in my life. It's okay. All right, so you've got these, these offspring here. You've got this enmity, which means you've got war, which is kind of how you get this idea of how they're like, okay, you know what? If this is, I'm at war with the woman, then if I can essentially corrupt the flesh of humankind, that's a pretty good way to go to war, right? If I could breed them out. You're like, Benny, this is crazy. Yeah, I think so. But I also think it's true. Genesis 6, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The word blameless, we talked a little bit about this last week, and we're going to talk about it right now. Okay, so blameless The word blameless means free from defect, as may be observed in the many passages describing unblemished animals presented to God. So there's all that stuff. So anytime that there's sacrifices and you're talking about it's got to be a clean animal, unblemished, unblemished, unblemished. That unblemished thing is this blameless thing. And it's not saying that Noah had zero sin. What it's inferring is that he was pure. He was without genetic defect. And so you're like, okay, why would they use this word genetic defect? Like, why would he be pure in this sense? Why does that matter? Well, if you've got the sons of God, which is actually angels that are procreating with human women, then those, you'd have some defects in there. You'd have a genetic thing that's happening. And I know some people are like, man, this is a hard thing to swallow. Yes, it is. But you've got this thing that's happening, right? And look at this genealogy so we got genealogies right here. So on the left, we got Adam, and this is his age on the right. Um, we talked about this in one of the sermons. Adam, and then Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lemek, and then 126 years after Adam died, Noah was born, which means that Adam had spent time all the way through with Lemek. Like, a lot of times we think of generations as like, you know what, maybe you see your grandchildren or maybe your great-grandchildren if you're super old. Here, they're seeing a lot of generations, a lot of generations. I mean, if you do the math there, Lemek would have been 56 years old 
when Adam died. Is that enough time for him to have had a couple stories from Adam of what it was like in the garden? I would think probably. I would assume so. We also talked about when you do generational things where they would say genealogy is so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Those names have meanings. And in their context, they would say man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching, and his death shall bring the despairing rest. Like, is that not the gospel? And all it is is just a genealogy name in Hebrew. Isn't that cool? So we talked about that for a little bit. All right? We talked, again, about that genealogy, but we also have this genealogy where you have Cain, then Enoch, Irad, Mahujael, Methushael, Lamech, and then it says Lamech had two wives, Ada, who had a couple sons, and Zillah, who had Tubal-Cain, and Naamah. Okay? So a lot of times... I grew up thinking about Cain and being like, okay, he was a murderer. We moved on from his line. His line did terrible things. It was cut off at the flood. How many people are in the same boat as me with that? Is that what you guys have thought? That's what I thought for a lot of my life, okay? When I started looking through this, it's like, okay, every time, going back to the, remember the, you know, uh, the different steps with Hebrew where you start looking deeper, Anytime that you have a woman in a genealogy, it's kind of a red flag for me. It's like, whoa, there's something significant about this, right? Is it because women are less than men? I I should hear a response. Absolutely not, okay? Let me be clear, has nothing to do with that, okay? Nothing to do with it, but it catches your attention, right? Like, you're like, okay, all of these guys, and we're going to stop the genealogy here at Naamah. By the way, we've got this girl here. Anybody wonder why? Okay, I guess I can go to the next thing then. So you've got these genealogies. I'm going to put them side by side. You've got Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Not to be confused with the other ones on the other side, which some of them have very similar names. Adam, Cain, Enoch, um, Ired, Mahujael, instead of whatever, it doesn't matter, uh, Methushael, Lamech, and then Naamah. All right, I put Naamah there because, well, there's other sons and daughters, but Naamah is the one I want to focus in on. It's fascinating to me when you start reading through the rest of the account with Noah. Very frequently it talks about Noah and his wife, Noah and his wife, Noah and his wife, Noah and his wife and his kids. And did you guys realize it never says what Noah's wife's name is? Isn't that fascinating? It never says the name. And yet, we don't know that name, but we know Nama? Are you kidding me? Like, isn't that weird? Like, in an Eastern mind, in a Hebrew mind, it's like, hey, wait a second. There's the red flag here. Why? Right? The Hebrew rabbis for centuries, 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 even the rabbis that would have taught Jesus, all had believed that Nama was actually Noah's wife. Think about that for a second. Can I tell you 100% that that's accurate? No, but I think so. Okay? This is me saying, you know what, I agree with the rabbis. I could be wrong. But I think, you know what, I look at the stories that happen over and over afterwards, after the flood, where, where there's a line that'll go this way. You know, you have Abraham and you've got Lot and they separate, 
separate ways, right? And this line goes this way, and this line goes this way, and you know God comes and redeems them again, and out of Lot comes Ruth, and out of Abraham comes Boaz. You have Boaz and Ruth, and he redeems an entire line. Like, it happens over and over again where God is has a desire to redeem lines. He has a desire to restore lines. He has a desire to be merciful instead of just say, justice, we're going to cut you off. And I think about when, when Jesus is teaching, hey, don't just forgive the Cain situation. I want you to forgive all the way up to a lemmick. I want you to be able to get to a place where you can restore even a lemmick line. Is that a challenge for us? Yeah. All right, Noah and Naamah. Um, we talked a little bit about this last week. I'm going to focus a little bit more on it. There's two kinds of justice that we get translated as, well, different kinds of justice in English, but in Hebrew it would be mishpat and Dean. And mishpat is the God who is slow to anger, abounding in love, preferring restorative justice as opposed to retributive justice. Mishpat is all about taking on the case of the marginalized, the outsider, the widow, the orphaned, and the foreigner. And the goal of restorative rectifying justice is to transform the offender, reconcile the offender with the victim, and restore the relationship with all those in the community. It's about putting things back in the right place. It's putting, hey, where did you go? You're supposed to be over here, Adam and Eve. Hey, Cain, where, where are you? Hey, you should be back over here. It's, it's restoring, all right? Um, which is kind of the opposite of the retributive justice of just eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, death for a death. Dean is more of this like finality of judgment, right? When it's like, okay, we've reached all of the cries of the wicked. We've like all of the stuff that's happened, it's time for like, it's dropping the hammer time. Where God hears the cries of the victims and while he is slow to anger, his anger does come. And when it comes in a time with final justice and it happens on behalf of the victim. And we talked a little bit about in Second Peter 2 how it talks about, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but then sent them to Tartarus, hell, um, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. I want to focus on one thing in here. If he did not spare the ancient world, if he did not spare the ancient world, what problems do we have with that statement? Anybody? Does anybody have a problem with if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood? I don't know about you, but I grew up, I grew up thinking from the paradigm God was really angry. And God brought us justice, and he didn't spare them. Right? I mean, he brought annihilation. He saved a family. Think about it, right? But here it says in 2 Peter 2, if he did not spare the ancient world. And brought the flood. I'm wrong. Reading it again one more time. If he did not spare the ancient world. Yeah, so he did. Sorry, you're right. Whew. Back to the, I'm sorry. In my head, I read that differently when I just read it, and I was like, oh, my goodness, it's different. Okay, 
He didn't spare the rest of them. He did only save the family. All right. I'm just going to move on from that. Whew. All right. As in the days of Noah. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go right back to this one. Okay. So we've got the Noah. We've got Naamah. Okay. I think, I think, because we've got the flood that's about to happen, right? We've talked about the Nephilim and the Nephilim being essentially these half-breeds, right? Where there's this situation where the seed is being corrupted. So if you've got um, Noah who is blameless, then you have the other ones that have this corruption that's happening, right? And I think corruption is more than just sin and wickedness, which says that sin was on their minds, wickedness was on their mind all of the time, right? So there was that kind of corruption, but I also think that there was a genetic corruption that was going on. I remember the first time that I was reading... um, well, some, some rabbis, and they had conjectured, and I'm going to give this to you guys to wrestle with it, okay? But they had conjectured that, that Noah, here we go, that Noah, when he was a righteous man, blameless among the people in his time, they conjectured that Noah was one maybe the only one left that was walking with God righteously and still genetically perfect. Can I tell you for a fact that that's accurate? No. But it's a fascinating thought when you start saying, wait a second, if there's this thing where they've intentionally put this blameless thing in here without genetic defect, there's this concept where... Yes, there's this final anger, this final judgment, this dean that happens on the earth, right? But there's also, at the same time, this mercy that happens. Where if you think about a father and and a son being like, you know what, I'm going to have to use this family and do it over. Like if we're getting to a place where the genetic lines are getting skewed enough times that we might run out of a pure line, right? Right? Isn't that a fascinating thought? I look at it with the, the lines. Let me put up here. Sorry, i got to find my gene- uh, genealogy line. In here, we see men. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel. All the way down. In Matthew, we see all the way to Jesus and all the way to Mary, right? Has anybody ever stopped to say, why do we just have the genealogy of men? What does it matter? Right? What does it matter? Now, I know that, yes, ancient cultures, you would do things by the father's line and then the first son generally, which gets broken. Sometimes it's the second or the third. Like, for instance, um, Seth was the third son. Right? And we see it over and over again later. But you, when you have a son to son to son, I think it goes back to this Nephilim idea where the sons of God, where the angels found the daughters of men attractive, right? And so when you have this interpreting, there's something that happens when it's an angel with a, a woman. And so in order to have a genetic line that is pure, you have to know the male all the way down. And again, does that mean that it's because the males are more important? Not at all. It just means that when we get all the way down, you have a purity that happens. Isn't that a fascinating thought? Okay. Next week, we're going to do this. And I know you can't read it. Um, this is a 
Anybody guess? What is this? A chiasm. Okay, this is Noah's story in a chiasm. And I'm going to make this bigger so you can read it next week, and we're going to go through it. So next week, we're going to look through um, a chiasm. All right? And I've got just a few reflections I just want you to think about. So we started with everything that God had made. God made with his goodness. We talked about how there's choices, life and death, the two different trees. We also have this thing that happens where we can either live by our strength and our desires, like Eve and then Adam, but also then like Cain, or we can trust his voice and spirit, like Enoch or Noah. All right? We, after we receive his forgiveness in our lives, we become essentially the jailers in our own life with the keys and the keys of forgiveness that can free us, the one that's jailed, from the cells of unforgiveness. His mercy triumphs over justice then. All right, there are two seeds at war, but only one currently realizes it, in my opinion. And that serpent seed is trying to continually corrupt the human seed created in God's image. God is patient, and his desire is restoration, redemption, and relationship with us. And then I've just got a question for you guys to grapple with. Did God bring the flood out of anger, grace, or both? All right. What we're going to do now, as is tradition with our church, is we're going to break up into groups of three, four, five, six, seven. We're just going to pray with each other, encourage each other, bless each other. If you are new here and you're like, I'm not quite sure I feel comfortable with that, I ask you just sit where you are, let somebody come to you, and let them bless you. You do not have to pray over them. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything other than ideally just let them pray over you. And then in a few minutes, we'll do some more worship through uh, singing. And then we'll have uh, a time downstairs where we've got a meal provided. And we've got stuff over there for you guys to sign up. All right, go ahead.